This episode is produced with support from DBT Wellcome Trust India Alliance. Have you ever wondered where exactly animals wander about in their habitats? Who is the most intelligent of all animals and why it may be inappropriate to feed stray dogs? Yes, I said it, but dog lovers, don't hate me for it. You'll soon know why. As humans, we don't know much about the other inhabitants of our magnificent planet. Every animal species on earth uses or changes its environment to meet its life's needs, interacting with resources in ways that support its own survival and reproduction. In this episode of the Nature India podcast series called I am a scientist and this is where I work, join me your host Shubhra Priyadarshini as I take you through forests and grasslands trace animals in their natural environments, revealing, so to say, a set of guiding principles that apply to what is essentially their kingdom. I am joined today by Abhi Tamim Vana, an animal ecologist and conservation biologist, sharing with us his research on what happens when species interact with each other in such settings he studies the interface of humans, domestic animals and wildlife in semi-arid savannas and agro-ecosystems. Abhi, welcome to the Nature India podcast. You have a bunch of really interesting research experience up your sleeve, starting as a wildlife scientist to then also studying the public health impacts of different species on humans. I trained as a wildlife scientist. I've worked on fruit bats, I've worked on tigers, lions. I did my PhD on Indian foxes and then I went to South Africa for a postdoc where I worked on large African carnivores such as charismatic species, leopards, lions, cheetahs and so on. As well as a lot of work on elephants in Kruger. But primarily my PhD research was based in India and I worked on a on a species that is very little known. This is the Indian fox. And it occurs in a habitat that's also very little known, the Indian savanna. I expanded that to include how domestic dogs can have negative impacts on native species, such as foxes, but also have massive public health impacts because they are the main carriers of diseases like rabies. Great. So your research spans more than two decades and I'd like to understand what the most interesting findings have been for you. We found that animals are very resilient. So it's not necessary that wildlife only occurs in uh, forests or in wildlife or in these national parks and sanctuaries. You can have large animals living in your backyard. We found that these animals use lots of different ways of trying to avoid being disturbed by humans and, and trying to avoid being seen by humans. What we've also found is there are some species that are habitat generous so that they don't mind changes to the habitat that humans are making. They actually thrive in agricultural ecosystems. So jackals and jungle cats, for instance, use sugarcane fields. 
the jackals eat sugarcane as well. The jungle cats roam around in sugarcane fields catching rodents. Whereas the Indian foxes that I studied are grassland specialists. So they are mostly found in the adjoining uh, savanna grassland habitats. They don't mind some human presence, but they need to have denning sites that are free of disturbance for them to be able to live in that landscape. For me, a surprising, you know, a really interesting finding was that we found the jungle cats were even using the towns. They were walking around on the roads at night. And we find this with lots of other species as well. Okay, that's when animals visit us in our habitat. How about when you go to look for them in your field project? So let's understand from you the kind of planning that goes into preparing for one of these really exotic sounding research trips. As a wildlife scientist, a lot of the work obviously requires traveling to fairly remote places, capturing animals and fitting GPS tags to them. And this requires quite a bit of setup. Most of my work is done outside. My aim is to try and understand how wildlife continues to thrive in human-dominated landscapes, especially in the semi-arid savanna landscapes of India. You know, most of my field stations have been set up in villages, for instance. Generally, I would either stay in a forest department uh, house or, or even on a guest house or just rent a place from, from a local villager. So most of the field stations are well-equipped. The equipment we have consists of you know, equipment to catch animals. They could be traps, they could be uh, either foothold traps or cage traps. We have the telemetry gear that we deploy on the animals. We have antennas and uh, the collars themselves uh, and various other specialist devices, including your GPS, navigation equipment, obviously computers and software for mapping. We also have a freezer and a refrigerator for uh, storing samples, storing chemicals and veterinary drugs and so on. In uh, movement ecology, that's what it is called, right? Figuring out locations of where the animals are is important. Tell us about the process of how you reach these animals. But most of these animals that I study are fairly elusive. You know, things like uh, foxes, jungle cats, jackals hyenas, you rarely see them. So then if you want a really good idea of where they are, uh, you must let the animal inform you. And the way to do that is to um, give them a necklace or a collar. Uh, so we put a, a GPS uh, device on these animals and uh, these will collect a position, you know, at some predetermined interval. It could be 15 minutes, it could be one hour. Those data are then remotely downloaded using a handheld receiver so that you don't have to physically capture the animal, the radio link. It just uh, it sends the data back to you. I also do a lot of work on health, trying to do disease investigations of these animals. So then, obviously, we have to capture these animals, either it's dogs or these wild carnivores. We collect blood samples, we collect hair samples, saliva samples, to investigate for diseases that or pathogens that these animals may harbor. Again, not many might know about the mesocarnivores and their adaptation to human-dominated landscapes that you research. Tell us a little about these mesocarnivores. We study small carnivores or mesocarnivores. These are mid-sized animals between 2 to about 15 or 20 kilos. Many of these animals are pretty wary of human presence, so we have to use a variety of techniques to capture them. But first, we need to find out where they are. We'll set up what's called track plots. 
This is just a bit of dust, fine dust scattered on the ground so that we can see their footprints. So using this, we know that the animals are there. Then we put up camera traps to know what time they're coming to that location. And then we start baiting uh, in that area for a few days. And then once we're ready, we know these animals are coming and we know what time they're coming there. We set up traps accordingly, hope to capture them that evening or that night. Wow. So these uh, traps basically store much of your learnings. Fieldwork is always so exciting in its uh, unpredictability. You'd like to share uh, some such moments from your research trips? Uh, sure. A moment that was really eye-opening for me was when I was doing my PhD work, I was testing dogs at that time. I was taking blood samples. We used to go from village to village and people would bring their dogs. We would vaccinate them for rabies. And people would bring them, we would take a blood sample, we'd also take a saliva sample. And then we would test that saliva sample for for rabies using a rapid kit. In general, the saliva samples are not very um, sensitive or they're not very reliable. But on one occasion, we had a couple of kids bring along their dog. That dog tested positive for rabies. And that was a real eye-opener because the dog seemed completely fine otherwise, normally. And then this sort of got me started on this question of rabies as a public health threat as well. And so it was a really interesting learning moment when I was trying to capture jackals for the first time. And I found that they're really, really clever. So it's not the foxes that are clever, it's the jackals that are clever. Um, the foxes get trapped pretty easily. But the jackals would find ways of avoiding the traps. They would know where the traps are. But it was an interesting learning experience. And again, showed you know, how animals in these human-dominated landscapes are pretty wary of human presence. And and will go out of their way to avoid anything that looks new or novel. Wonderful. So what research questions are you working on right now? So the principal interest for me is to try and understand what are the outcomes of interactions between humans, domestic animals, and wildlife. Now, these outcomes can go from a spectrum of coexistence to conflict uh, to disease spread. Uh, and also uh, a broader question of persistence and conservation. So, you know, in a country like India, obviously there's people everywhere. We still, we have done a pretty remarkable job of uh, having wild animals around. You know, other places, countries in the global north decimated their wildlife and only much later either adopted this conservation ethos and tried to recover endangered species. But India, despite having 1.4 billion people, still has a global stronghold for tigers and for leopards and elephants. And it's still the only place in the world where you can find the Asiatic lion. The wildlife in India does have a very good chance. Everybody's now very keen or very aware of the risk of disease spread from wild animals to humans. And uh, domestic animals are often a key link for that transmission pathway. So also interested in using this One Health approach to understand the risk of emergence of diseases to humans and, and both and vice versa. Your research work with the wildlife in human-dominated systems also explains your workplace in human-direct landscapes. Give us a feel of your workplace and what one would mostly hear in, in these areas. You know, people who are not in this field sort of are always envious about is that I get to go to really beautiful places. I get to hang out outdoors all the time. 
you know, I don't want to burst that that bubble, but it's also a lot of hard work because we are in difficult terrain or we're in a difficult place. We're working often in very, very hot conditions. So the places that I work in, typically in summers, the temperature goes up to 46, 47, 48 degrees and often without electricity. So it is challenging, but I, I wouldn't uh, change a thing about it because it's really, it's also very exciting. Um, in terms of the, the sounds, you know, we're, you know, like I said, I, I work in human-dominated landscapes, so I'm always surrounded by sounds that come from humans going about their daily activity. Uh, it could be a temple playing out songs, but uh, or you know, the traffic or the livestock going out on their daily. Thing. But but the sounds that we really look out for are the calls of animals. So it could be the breeding season, the foxes are out there having that their, their typical coughing sound, or at night jackals calling in unison from their, from you know, when they're getting ready to go about their day, or wolves might call every once in a while. When I was studying tigers for my masters, uh, listening to a tiger roar was from very close quarters was was quite an intense experience because that sound sort of reverberates through your body. So it's, I still, it's still very memorable for me. Young researchers coming into the field, how should they approach ecological studies? Prerequisite almost for doing field ecology at least is to have a love uh, of the outdoors, being animal lovers, so to speak, uh, love spending time with animals. Biologists tend to not like maths, and that's unfortunate. But being good at maths is also really good, really important for ecology because ecology is also a theoretical field. Your data, you do need to be able to uh, either model, use models to understand systems work or be good at statistics to you know, make sense of those data that you've collected and also have an innate curiosity for how, how the world functions around you, um, having a keen sense of observation. I think those are pretty useful for any budding scientist in general, but certainly for a budding ecologist. Right. Now, there's this kind of controversial counterintuitive statement that you are often heard making about not planting trees or not feeding stray dogs. Would you care to tell our listeners the rationale behind these thoughts? Well, basically what I tell people is don't feed dogs and don't plant trees. But the work that I've been doing for the past 20 years has sort of brought me to this conclusion. Animals are resilient. A lot of animals do have individual personalities. We tend to think of animals as sort of this like monolithic block, you know, or the poor voiceless or the innocent animals. No, we don't need to ascribe those kinds of human moralities to those animals. And what we should definitely, definitely not do, never try and feed wild animals. Certainly don't try and feed domestic dogs that are not yours as well, because they can have a huge problem for wildlife. The other thing I talked about, remember, was I said don't plant trees, and that's also counterintuitive. But that's because most people try and plant trees in grassland. Um, you wouldn't want to uh, create a forest in the African savanna. So why would you want to do that in the Indian savanna? The grass is also green. It's not just about planting trees. It's not just about showing. If you want to show compassion to animals, often trying to look at our own lifestyles, it's a better way of showing compassion than, than you know, feeding them, for instance, or trying to rescue animals. Don't, don't try and rescue a wild animal unless you're a professional. So there, you heard what Abhi has to say. 
humans often have negative interactions with wildlife when either of us has a conflicting need that we are looking to fulfill animal ecologists like abi vanak are trying to create that bridge that balance which could help us understand their world better if you liked what you heard be sure to share this episode of the nature india podcast with friends and colleagues and check out our archives for more in both english and hindi thanks for tuning in i'm your host shubhra priyadarshini and this is your go to podcast for all things science in india the nature india podcast This episode was produced with support from DBT Wellcome Trust India Alliance.